What a wonderful time of year. I hope you're getting some of your shopping done. Get it done early, which I never do. Get it done with Steel Products. S-T-I-H-L. I'll tell you all the time about uh, Steel Products. They're the best in the business at making your property sensational. And they have all kinds of sales going on right now. Go to steeldealers.com. Again, S-T-I-H-L. You'll find the nearest dealer uh, very close to your home, I'm sure, because there's more than 10,000 around the country. Steel USA is where you go and can peruse so many of the wonderful items that they have. How about this? An electric vacuum to clean the garage. You know what? I've done this before. You need one of those power vacuums? They have it. They're on sale right now at Steel. How about the GTA 26 Garden Pruner? That's on sale as well through Christmas. All these sales going on through Christmas. So go right now. The leaves are off the trees, maybe completely off the trees, depending where you live. Get a blower. Get the BGA 57. It's a handheld blower. I have one of these. Um, right now, it's on sale for $179.99, and this comes with uh, the battery and the charger. If gas is uh, your preferable route, they have those as well for $169.99. They'll clean up the yard. They'll make everything easy. I was telling you, I was using it to blow snow through the walkway uh, recently, so it is multi-purpose. Chainsaws galore. Listen. Make that significant other in your family really happy. Go to Steel this holiday season. Again, all kinds of great deals going on right now. Steel, S-T-I-H-L. This week on the Drew Goodman Podcast, on our new launch day, Tuesdays, Drew is breaking down college football and has a bone to pick with Coach Prime. I'm not a fan of when you throw people under the bus. Plus, our special guest, Rocky's hitting coach, Henslin Ulins, a.k.a. Bam Bam, on the development of Rocky's hitters like Ezekiel Tovar. How his demeanor changed in-game, on the bench, joking around. He would come to the rain and say, hey, I'm going to... I'm going to hit this ball out right here. I'm going to hit a double in the gap. And he'll go out and do it. This mine is way ahead of his age. Plus, did you know Bam Bam is a knight? Subscribe to the Drew Goodman Podcast wherever you find podcasts and tell all your favorite coordinators. This is the Drew Goodman Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome in to show number 227. Doing something a little different this week and actually for at least the remainder of the football season. That's kind of our endeavor, at least. Come out a little bit earlier so we can reflect on the weekend. So we'll uh, we'll be dropping on Tuesday, typically, Tuesday morning as opposed to Thursday. We may go back to Thursday as we move uh, back into the uh, winter months and get ready for spring training, etc. Uh, but at least right now, so we can react on uh, all of the happenings in college football and the NFL, we're going to uh, we're going to drop on Tuesday. So, uh, with the Broncos off this week, and I'm getting ready to head to fantasy camp literally in about an hour and a half. I thought on this Sunday morning, I would reflect on uh, what I witnessed through the college football weekend. And there's a lot to unpack there. I'll begin with where I went yesterday. Um, I went to the 
Air Force Army game at Empower Field. Really looking forward to watching Air Force in person. I've seen them on television a little bit. Uh, I was talking about them last week, just a few days ago. They were 8-0. I felt like, and I'm not alone in this, that they had a, a real good shot at going 12-0, at going unbeaten. And they would have been, because we know they lost to Army, but they would have been in a position a year from now if they did go 12-0 and to perhaps be in the college football playoff once it expands to 12. Uh, but you know what happened. They got beat, and they got beat badly against uh, Army, a 2-6 and six Army team that had been shut out the previous couple of weeks. Um, they, I honestly, I went to the game. It was a beautiful day. It was great to see, uh, what, more than... Uh, 50,000, 52,000 in the house at Empower Field. Um, such pageantry when the military academies get together. You know that. Um, it was a glorious day. And I was just shocked. Uh, you know it's going to be close typically when the academies get together. It's the proverbial throw out the, the records. But honestly, I thought I would probably be able to depart, you know, early fourth quarter because Air Force would have the game in hand. I was debating whether to go up to Boulder and catch that one also. Um, either way, I departed um, with about eight minutes to go in the fourth quarter, and it was over. It was Army way ahead of Air Force. I did not see that one coming. It just shows you how tough it is to win week in and week out at the highest level of football, whether it's the NFL, whether it's college football, even in the high school ranks. It's hard to play at the same level week in and week out. And uh, Air Force got dismantled uh, by the Black Knights. Air Force turned the ball over six times. Even when they had opportunities to make big, big plays. They had several in the passing game. They had a long drop pass. They had a couple of overthrows. And then, uh, again, turnover margin is always the most important stat in football. And they they lost six turnovers. So, uh, you know, I was shocked to see that. Troy Calhoun, obviously very disappointed after as, as Air Force falls to 8-1. and one. Uh, I, I know having done a number of Air Force games through the years, that number one for an academy is to win the Commander-in-Chief's trophy. Uh, number two is to win their conference championship. And, you know, that's still within the sights for Air Force, but uh, so disappointing uh, that they lost uh, to Army uh, being out here in Colorado. And, uh, you know, there's never a loser when, when the academies get together because you have such unbelievable respect for those young men that are competing and, and uh, ultimately defending our country. But um, it was disappointing because I wanted to see Air Force uh, go 12-0. Quick story on my first ever college football game. First game I ever saw was at Mikey Stadium at West Point. I was probably 10 years old. And growing up in New York, just outside of the city, that it, that's a pro town. I think I think people that have traveled around the country a lot or spent any time in New York 
realize that is a pro town. It's not a big college town, especially when it comes to college football. I mean, there's some history with college basketball. You go way back to to City College, St. John's through the years. Uh, But when it comes to to college football, there's, there's nothing really in the area that people gravitate toward. So the first college game that I went to again was Army taking on Pitt at Mikey Stadium. And as I recollect, it was a beautiful day. And if you've ever been to West Point, um, you know how gorgeous that setting is, just like the just like Air Force, just like Annapolis in Maryland, where the Naval Academy is. Um, if you have not ever been to West Point, make the drive. Sitting up there high above the Hudson River, gorgeous. I mean, just gorgeous. Anyhow, uh, I'm watching the game a million years ago, and there's this freshman running back for Pitt that's running up and down the field against Army. His name, of course, Tony Dorsett. And you're saying, wait a second, Tony Dorsett? Yeah, for those that uh, may not remember, Tony Dorsett did not become Tony Dorsett until he got to the NFL, and with the Cowboys, he uh, corrected <laughs> something he, uh, I guess, decided not to do as a as a teenager when he was in college in Western PA, and that has let everybody know the real pronunciation of his name is Tony Dorsett. So he was Tony Dorsett in college, Tony Dorsett as he began his uh, Hall of Fame NFL career. But the first college football game I ever saw, Pitt, the Pitt Panthers at Mikey Stadium taking on the uh, Black Knights of Army and this freshman running back. I think he went for like, if my, if my memory's right, like 256 yards. And it wasn't that far removed from when freshmen weren't even eligible to play. Um, but that was fun. I remember that. Don't ask me why. I remember the quarterback for for Army was a guy named Lehman Hall. Um, I think they had a tight end, Clenny Brundage or something like that. Names that stick in your memory bank for whatever reason. So there you go. Colorado State, since we'll uh, continue in the Mountain West for a moment, uh, against Wyoming. Congrats to Wyoming Cowboys, Craig Bull. I mean, year in and year out, they know who they are. They're a physical football team. They run the ball well. They play strong defense. Uh, He puts guys in the NFL. He takes a bunch of typically two-star and some three-star guys, and he gets their hungry man, their chip-on-the-shoulder guys. I have such uh, immense respect for Wyoming. And for Colorado State, close football game in the first half. We've seen that before, and things get away from them uh, in the second half. They turn it over uh, too many times. And I'm a big believer in Jay Norvell. I've said that many times on the podcast. We had Jay on shortly after he got uh, the job. Um, I know it's a process, The disappointing aspect for me, and I'm sure for all Ram fans this year, is that they've had opportunities, but they just don't seem to finish games. And on top of that, whenever they're playing a rival, and this precedes Jay Norvell's arrival from Reno to Fort Collins, they can't beat their rivals, man. The last 20 games they've played... 
against Wyoming for the bronze boot, against CU, and against Air Force. They are 1-19. and 19. That is horrendous, I need not tell you. And the only game they won of the 20 was during the COVID year against Wyoming in front of no one. So, I mean, there's probably an asterisk on that one. Are you kidding me? One in 19? It's just, that's the stuff that if you're a Rams fan, it just pisses you off. Because you go, look at our facilities. I know I've gone back to that. Look at everything we have going on up there. They tell us the roster is full of good players, and yet they don't win. And I know there's some Ram fans um, that are saying, hey, you know, it's, it is part of the process, and, and they're, they're getting better. Last year, they, they won three games, and, and this year, you know, they're, they're a little bit better. They gave Colorado all they wanted. Yeah, they did give Colorado all they wanted, but they lost. Um, they were they were right there with Air Force for 30 minutes, but then that game got away from them. The bottom line, and it's a bottom line business, is winning and losing. That's it, right? And here's something else. When people talk about, you know, the future looks bright, and I don't disagree with that, but you look at this Colorado State roster, and I know they have a, a freshman at quarterback who who can wow you and he also can wow you the other direction with not good reads. And and he had a couple of those uh, against Wyoming. But they have an NFL caliber wide receiver in Torrey Horton. They have an NFL caliber tight end in the, in the BYU transfer Holker. These guys are going to, they're going to be on NFL rosters in all likelihood next year. They have a defensive end who's leading the nation in sacks, who's going to have an opportunity to play in the NFL. So they have some impact players. And when you talk about next year, those guys won't be around. So there is a level of disappointment in what has transpired so far in Fort Collins. And again, I'm a big believer in Jay Norvell. But you got to start winning some of these football games that you're competitive in. You know, the loss at Utah State, bad. UNLV, who's much better, but you lost there. And for those who are saying, well, again, going back to the whole process thing, look where UNLV was. Look where Utah State, those aren't, I mean, UNLV's typically been bad. So, um We'll see what uh, what happens in the coming weeks for uh, for Colorado State. All right, now to the University of Colorado. Uh, everything they do is well documented. Everything they do, good and bad, is celebrated. And certainly at the start of the year, everything they did uh, seemingly was great out of nowhere. And I think as we talk about the University of Colorado right now in football. I don't want to forget one important context, and that is this was a team that was arguably the worst major college program a year ago. They were 1-11. They were non-competitive, non-competitive. They got blown out virtually every week. So when you fast forward and see where they are, even though they're now 4-5, and five, they're much better. We know that. They're much better, and though they have five losses, and they've lost 
what is it, four out of five or five out of six, they are, with the exception of the Oregon game, competitive every week against a really daunting schedule because the Pac-12 in its final year of existence is really good. They lost to a good Oregon State team Saturday night. They gave USC all they wanted. I know USC is terrible defensively, but they gave USC all they wanted uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, They are competitive week in and week out. I mean, if the 2022 version of the Buffaloes played this 2023 schedule, oh man, oh man, you know what it would look like. It would not be pretty. So I don't want to lose sight of that. But in discussing where the Buffs are right now, and it all begins with their celebrated head coach, Coach Prime. It's all about Coach Prime and and what he's done and and, uh, how he articulates his vision for his team. And that started at the press conference initially, you know, months ago. I'm bringing in, you know, my own luggage, and it's Louie. I wasn't a fan of how he stated it then. I articulated it on this podcast. I'm a fan of of Dion. I'm a fan of overall the direction of the program, and I want to see them be great again. I was here and covered that team when they won a national championship, and, and I did you know, a number of their games in the 90s when they were year in and year out a top 10 program. I want to see them get back to that. I'm a Coloradan. Been here for going on 40 years. But I also need to point out where I don't like some of the things that are that are said. And the big story this week was Sean Lewis being demoted. Now, I think many of you who are listening to this podcast probably are aware of, of who Sean Lewis is. Offensive coordinator at the University of Colorado and the play caller, who a year ago was the head coach at Kent State. And he wasn't getting fired at Kent State. He was known as one of the most innovative offensive minds in all of college football. And they were a solid program in the, in the MAC. And Dion was able to lure Sean Lewis to be his offensive coordinator and run things for his son Shador, build an offense around Shador, and do all of the creative things he was doing in the MAC at Colorado. But he's no longer a head coach. I mean, not many guys do that. Not many guys will will give up a Division One head coaching job to become a coordinator. Even though, yes, it was moving up from the group of five to a Power 5 school, but this Power 5 school is coming off a 1-11 season. And Dion's a first-year head coach, but he got him to make that move. And then eight weeks in, he takes the play calling away from Sean Lewis, which was really perplexing. And here is what Dion said, in part, after the loss to Oregon State about elevating Pat Shermer to play caller and removing those duties from Sean Lewis. I'm not going to disclose all my thoughts, man. I mean, my thoughts are my thoughts. I'm not going to disclose when I make a decision to do something. Just know that I made the decision and I don't stumble or stutter on it, and I'm not looking back. It is what it is, and that's what it's going to be. 
I make a decision to help this team win. You guys don't know all the intangibles in it. You just from the out looking from the outside of the crib, looking in. I got tenant windows and you can't even see in the house, and but you're making conclusions on what I should and should not do. Dion, you're absolutely right in that we can't see into your crib. And there are things that happen behind closed doors that we are not privy to. Hundred percent. Nor perhaps should we be. But we can see through the tinted glass because when we watch the games on Saturday, there ain't no tinted glass. And we knew this much going into the Oregon State game. This is an offense that was averaging better than 32 points a game, producing well over 400 yards in offense every week. They did struggle against a very good UCLA defense the week prior in Pasadena. And again, I will allow, as I said a few moments ago, we are not privy to everything that goes into a decision. But to suggest that we don't really know what's going on, the proof is in the output, right? The proof is in what you've produced. And what Colorado had produced on offense under Sean Lewis, and your son is a quarterback who's very, very talented, as we all know, they produced better than 32 points a game. There are more issues, and yeah, there are issues on the offensive line. There are more issues defensively for the Buffs this year um, than offensively, even though, yes, Shador has been sacked quite a bit, and he's been under duress quite a bit. But I want to say something else about that, and I'm, I've always been careful about being critical of college athletes. Because in the past, they're college athletes, they're students, which they continue to be. Um, but things have changed a little bit um, in that with NIL, I mean, Shadur Sanders is reportedly making $5 million a year. So I, I think you're not above being you know, scrutinized to a certain degree when you are also being paid. And I think he's a wonderful talent. I said this earlier, he is really accurate with the football, typically makes very good decisions with the football, and he is one of the the top quarterbacks in college football, I think without question. But one of the things in watching him week in and week out is that he needs to sometimes tuck the ball down and run. I've talked about that in previous podcasts. Something that he does on rare occasions, seems to be reluctant to do that, but he has good feet, needs to do that more, needed to do that the other night against Oregon State. He also, quite frankly, holds the football too long at times. There are a number of sacks that he's taken that he should not take, where he's got to unload the football and live for the next down, throw the ball away, or use his feet. Now getting back to the coordinator situation, you don't have to be a football savant to understand certain things. Number one, changing, and Pat Shermer got a lot of criticism because so many Buff fans associate him with dismal offenses when he was calling the plays and the coordinator for the Broncos. It's not like all of a sudden he was going to run his offense. The concepts and the 
playbook. We're, we're not going to be dramatically altered over a couple of practices in the lead up to the Oregon State game. Now, his sequencing may have been different. His ideology as to as to down and distance and, and when to do certain things may be different. But but the plays you've seen through the first eight weeks are the plays that you saw in week nine. And you know, here's where where I have an issue. If you if you know anything about football, when you are dealing with a lot of pressure, when your offensive line is porous, or doesn't pass block as well as you'd like, you can't sit back there in a shotgun seven step situation. And, and think that all of a sudden, miraculously, you're going to have more time than you typically have over the first eight weeks. Not going to happen. You have to go to a quick game, get rid of the football. And they did that a little bit in the second half on the opening drive of the second half. And then, unfortunately, that ended up uh, in a punt. The other thing you do is you have to max protect or at least chip at the line of scrimmage and edge. And so frequently in that game, it, w- it was five hats on five rushers because Oregon State brought five in obvious passing situations most of the night. And that is where they overwhelmed Colorado. Well, there was never an adjustment from Pat Shermer schematically, keeping six in, maybe even keeping seven in, and seeing if Shador, who is very accurate, with one or two less receivers in the route combination could find somebody open because you would think he would have a little bit more time. Or as I said earlier, go back to the quick game. So, so that was disappointing. The other thing with, with Dion, and I'm, and, and I'm a fan. I'm a fan of uh, overall the direction of the program, but I'm not a fan of when you throw people under the bus. His handling of and this is where you know what you got point at yourself all good coaches all good leaders I said this last week point to themselves when things don't go well and say the buck always stops with me even internally behind the tinted glass we may be unaware of man that was all the fault of so and so or largely the fault of so and so you don't you don't throw anybody under the bus you are where the buck stops, and you take ownership. And he did that as he went off the field at the end of the first half because he absolutely blew that at the end of the first half. They have the football inside their own 10-yard line with, I believe, 38 seconds left. If I'm off on the time a little bit, it was well under a minute. You ain't done a damn thing on offense Throughout the first half, but because you've played good defense, you're down seven to three on your home field. Go into the locker room, just run the football there. Heck, even put a knee down three times. Go into the locker room, down seven to three, quote unquote, regroup and say, hey, we're right there. We're right there. Win the second half and you win the football game. Instead, when they hadn't done anything offensively, we're going we're gonna to drop back into our own end zone and throw the football. And they had a couple incompletions. Next thing you know, they have to punt. As you know, decent return. And Oregon State gets, gets a touchdown where they thought they're going to go into halftime 7-3. to three. 
Instead, it's 14-3. to And as we know, because Colorado scored late a couple of touchdowns, that turned out to be the difference in the football game. That was horrendous coaching. And that's not on Pat Shermer. When you decide what you're going to do there, that's the head coach saying, listen, hey, we're not throwing the football here. We're going to run it. We're going to get into the locker room, expire what's left on the clock, and we're going to take it from there. That is on the head coach. And Dion, to his credit, when going off, he said, that that one's on me. But it, but it he shouldn't even come to that. That's like coaching 101. You haven't done anything offensively. Even if you had Pat Mahomes back there, and maybe he's the one exception, you're not going to try to go 94 yards or whatever it was in that amount of time. You're just not. And nothing in the first half demonstrated, should have demonstrated to you, that that was going to be possible, feasible. Very poor coaching decision. But then I fast forward again to, to, you know, it's like a week earlier with the offensive line when he was pressed on it. He said, yeah, we got to go, you know, uh, I forget how he phrased it. He said, we got to go get new ones. I don't like that. And I I don't care whether they were NFL guys or college guys. You just you can say, listen, my guys are they're playing hard. We're coaching them up hard. We're we're working to get better week in and week out, knowing full well, as everyone in the media knows and everybody who follows the buffs know. Yes, they need better players up front. They need to be better on their offensive line. We all know that you don't need to 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 say that just like when he first initially got the job telling a bunch of young men, hey, you ain't squat, we're going to get better players. Well, one could assume on a 1-11 team there's going to be change. I just don't like when it's seemingly never your fault um, and it is always a finger pointed at players or in this particular week a finger pointed at a coach. And, and Sean Lewis is as good as God. There's no way he's coming back. No way he's coming back. And I know their coaching changes all the time. There are changes on staffs all the time. Um, but I think as Dion grows as a head coach, and he's a very young head coach in terms of experience at the college level, Jackson State previously, as we all know, and now at Colorado, how you handle your staff How you handle your players publicly is of profound importance. Can't get away from the college game. Very quickly, Jim Harbaugh, thoughts on that? There is no way in my estimation that there's some low-level member of your staff that is traveling and buying tickets to games of your opponent and putting together video of the signals coming in from future opponents and you had no idea who's sending them out there. And when that information is gathered, what, you're still oblivious to it? That is a bunch of crap. 
this will be interesting to see what the final outcome is. There are times that head coaches are criticized unfairly. I'll give you an example. Kid gets in a fight, you know, in downtown college town, USA, you know, on a, on a Saturday night. And somehow that's the coach's fault. I think just about every coach preaches handle your business well, um, know that you're going to be a, you know, a target potentially, know that you have to hold yourself to a, to a higher level because you're a member of our program, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Every coach you know, says those things. The reality is there are 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds that are going to make mistakes, just like we make mistakes as 40, 50, 60-year-olds, right? Um, so you cannot blame a head coach for every transgression that takes place within a group of 100-plus people, especially young people, right? That, to me, at times is unfair when a coach gets criticism when there is an occurrence like that. However, when you have a situation like they're investigating it in Michigan and this guy's resigned and then amazingly this guy says yeah coach harbaugh had no idea and yet he's not going to participate in the investigation that's a bunch of bullshit there's no way the head coach doesn't know what is going on with his staff and what information is being gathered and what information is being disseminated ain't buying it nor are you all right i think that covers uh most of what I wanted to talk about in the college football realm. Of course, the Broncos are off this week. Baseball, we know Texas, they're world champions. They're basking in that first ever uh, title for the Rangers. And uh, Bruce Bochy's now won his fourth. He already was going to the Hall of Fame. That is cemented. It's coming back next year. Uh, we'll get into free agency and some of the other baseball topics down the road. Uh, but what we're going to talk about this week is uh, hitting in the future for some young Rockies hitters, some of the names you know and some perhaps you do not uh, know as well. And we're going to do that this week with Bam Bam. What a great nickname. Hensley Mullins played in the big leagues and then has been a longtime uh, hitting coach uh, with the Giants, with the New York Yankees. And now he's running things uh, for the Colorado Rockies. And uh, he just finished his first year. Uh, he's a fascinating guy. He's uh, from Curacao. And when I talked to him a few weeks ago and uh, taped the interview you're about to uh, listen to, he was at his facility in Curacao. Uh, so here you go with... Uh, Hensley Mullins, again, better known as Bam Bam on the 2023 uh, season and what he's looking forward to going forward. How long did it take you to get back to Curacao, my friend? So it was three and a half to JFK. And then we had like a two-hour layover, three maybe, and then um, four hours from JFK to Curacao. Yeah, that's um, that, that's quite a little trip. Um, when, when you get to uh, your home on the island of Curacao, does it does it allow you to immediately decompress? Well, <laughs> if you can say that, um, so there is a different set of rules and that sets in when you get home. You know, you got the, the family waiting, um, the kids got all kinds of activities, 
and all of the above, you know. So yeah, <laughs> if you can say decompress, that's my kind of decompression. You, you know what? That's you're a family man, and that's what happens, man. You jump right in, and, and you're told what to do. It's like okay. <laughs> yeah, I uh, became an instant uh, Uber driver instantly. You know. Yeah, a hundred percent. I would think. You know, on the plane ride and and in when you do have a few quiet moments, you reflect back on on the season and, and where you saw growth and where you'd like to see growth. Do you look at it collectively or do you look at it individually? Because you work with with guys daily for you know seven eight months and and hoping that their improvement individually impacts the team in the win-loss column. How do you look at it, Bam? Well, for me, initially, um, you know, coming the season, I, I was not expecting to work with guys to get them better, you know, because of the group of guys um, we initially started with, you know, with Cronia first, B-Rod at second, you know, uh, Mack at third, Eli behind the plate, and then we had Gritch, uh, Profar, and, you know, KB and Chuck, and, like, these guys were going to make a run for, you know, and then things changed. You know, these guys got hurt. Um, um, we got younger guys come up and Jones and, and um, you know, Tovar was there all year. And then, um, you know, uh, Doyle um, and then on and on and on. So the, and the group changed at the, at the deadline for the trades. You know, we traded three of our four guys away with um, Mustakas and, and Gritch and Coney. And now we have Montero and, you know, um, you know, Guzman came up and, and Toglia and, you know, Bouchard, all these guys in the mix. And now the, the dynamic of coaching changes, you know, it's like more, oh, instead of game plan and now you're, oh, that's, you know, we can fix this mechanic or that mechanic or, um, you know, talk to the guy, uh, make sure that he's mentally, in a good place to go compete while he's struggling at the plate. You know, so the the whole dynamic of coaching changes while you your personnel changes and that's uh the reflection I had and, and obviously to, to 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 your point it was more of an individual um um you know set of eyes on guys than than the than the group thing. You know, we were struggling to to win games. So, you know, it became more of a like, oh, how can I help this guy have a good game today? How can I have the next guy have a good game today? And then do it tomorrow again. How how can we get them all going at the same time? And that was a struggle for a while. Um, but obviously at the end, you know, a lot of them got hot fire and they finished the year strong. You can you can say that for um, Montero. You can say that for Doyle. You can say that for Bouchard. You can say that for Trejo. You can say that for... Um, even Jonesy, that was the player of the week the last week of the season, but he had a solid um, rookie campaign, um, you know, and uh, uh, something to build off right there. So, so as you, as I mentioned, all these names, um, if you can't you can't leave uh, uh, Tovar out because he had a solid solid year all the way around. Um, she won the Gold Glove, in my opinion, with only seven errors all year. The the, the highest field percentage. Uh, any rookie shortstop, I believe, in the in the history of the game, um, and and he hit his weight. You know, he 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 
He has been a 250. They have 37 doubles. He has 15 homers. I believe he's still led our team in RBIs. Um, so that's a solid, solid year for a 21 year old. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great year. Did they? Yeah, you've been around a long time. You've had a lot of success, seen a lot of success, whether it was with the Giants and the in the World Championships there, being with the Yankees, and you know, going back to your playing days when you know that that began with the Yankees. Um, did did this group? Um, you, you always are, are so steady. People, you know, don't see you every day like I do, but you're always so steady. But did did they help uh, even energize you because they're excited not only about being uh, in the big leagues but trying to improve each day? Yes, they they, they definitely did. You know, um, and I and I told people this all year, most of the year. Then um, it, I, I knew I knew it was a challenge coming here to try to win and and um, have that mindset. And um, so, but then you know, it was like, oh, the challenge was like, okay, these guys got to get better. They gotta, they gotta perform. They gotta, um, you know, uh, produce, produce. They gotta produce. I mean, if you're in the big leagues, you gotta produce. The name of the game is produce. Uh, and I know um, we had our struggles, and um, but you know, in the long run, I thought that you know, coming to work every day and seeing this bunch of guys in the cage. Um, uh, and I was telling somebody the other day, this is the most work I've had to do at the big league level, like end season with, with guys, you know, and, and the, the stop was, uh, excuse me, the work was um, nonstop. Um, every day there was something, every day there was somebody that needed some attention to, to get going. So, and that part made it really fun to me and, and it rejuvenated myself, you know, I've been, uh, been in the game 38 years. It's just a year number 20 in the big leagues. Um, between playing and, and coaching. So, uh, with, in terms of that, you know, I, I felt great. Uh, enjoy the travel still. I enjoy going to the park every day and try in order, uh, in terms of getting these guys, um, what they needed to be successful on, the, on a daily basis. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to, you know, you, you mentioned some of the young guys, but I, I'm going to take each guy for a moment, if, if you would, and, and tell me where you think they grew the most and, and what, from a crystal ball standpoint, you see going forward. Let's start with Nolan Jones because you can't you can't dismiss. Uh, I think it was a nine thirty one OPS, which if you do that over six months, and he did it over basically four months, that's going to get you in the conversation for you know top ten votes in, in terms of MVP. It was that special. And uh, what do you have on on Nolan's improvement? What you learned about him in your first year with him, and what you see going forward? Well, from day one, um, I was in the uh, I was in Arizona at the um, pitching summit in January, and Nolan stayed in in, uh, in Arizona over the winter. He was working out at the complex. Um, and then the man and a few other guys, but I remember having conversations with him about, you know, um, you know, how he can improve on his swing and his approach and all of that. And, and he was a constant, you know, he was, uh, obviously they have a good spring it was sent down. I remember he came back up early, um, we were in Seattle, didn't play, got sent back down after a couple of days. He was very uh, discouraged at that point, you know, almost almost to the point he was crying, you know, what, what did I have to do to stay here? I said, listen, you know, you just go back down, keep doing what you're doing. Your time will come, you know, your time will come. And then, you know, this guy never stopped hitting all year, AAA and the big leagues. I mean, he hit all year. 
and he um, keeps a straight hat on his shoulder, um, came to work every day, made adjustments every time there was a little rut um, in his performance, and never backed down. And, um, you know, very confident. I saw his confidence grow. Um, I saw him playing with a lot of fire. I saw him play with a lot of energy, and he never backed down to face any opponent. And um, and that's special for me. That's uh, special when a young guy. Remember, he's only 24 too. That comes up and um, um, you know take the league by storm like this and have that high OPS. Um, he finished the last day with a 2020 season when he stole his uh, 20th base. Um, so that that's very impressive. 20 doubles, 20 homers, uh, 20 stolen bases. He's, he had 60 some RBIs. Uh, I believe he scored six runs. So to your point, you know, uh, on the long run, if you look at these numbers, you know, that's a, you know, uh, 30 to 40 home run performance with 100 to 120 RBIs and one scored and, you know, 40 stolen bases, things like that. Um, you know, it's like, you know, very few people have accomplished this kind of production um, over their career, let alone their first year. Yeah, pretty special. And, and you, you talked a little bit about Tovar already as a, as a kid that played most of this year at 21, in early August he turned 22. The thing that that always amazes me about him, and you've been around countless players as teammates and guys that you've coached, Bam. This kid has a maturity level of like a 60 year old, and he never gets too high or too low. And he had, to me, the the same energy on you know, September 28th that he did on October, or excuse me, on March 28th. Yes, you know, um, what I want to say about Toby is, you know, early in the season he struggled that first month, um, and he was a little discouraged, and, you know, but just by talking to him every day, showing him, changing his routine in the cage, giving him some new drills um, in order to clean the bat path and, and make some more contact up front of the plate. Um, so, so, so those little adjustments helped him get on back on track. We had a good, good second month of the season, and then he was very consistent uh, for the rest of the year. So, um, but his mindset is what's impressive. It's what's allowing him to, um, you know, work through adversity. While I have to say, it, it didn't affect. And the other parts of his game, base running, especially defense, you know, he's kept playing solid defense through, um, you know, a few weeks of struggling on offense um, early in the season. And then once he hit his stride, you know, we saw how his confidence grew, how his uh, uh, demeanor changed uh, immensely in game on the bench. You know, he was, he was joking around. Um, he would come to the rain and say, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to hit this ball out right here. I'm going to hit a double in the gap. Um, you know, and, and he will go out and do it. And, um, or he says, you know, as aggressive as he was all year, hey, I'm going to draw a walk right here. And he goes there and, and takes four pitches and walk. So, so the, the, this mind is way ahead of his, his, his uh, age. And, um, you know, I appreciate him, um, obviously 
being himself and not being afraid of uh, any of the challenges. And, uh, you know, that's, this guy is going to be good for a long time. What's he settle into? You never want to put a ceiling uh, in terms of numbers on a guy. I mean, he hit 15 homers this year in his first full season. Uh, you know, he's strong. I mean, I watch his BP. He goes out to the big parts of the ballpark with ease. Um, and I know batting practice, you know, is five o'clock and these are the best guys in the world and it's 55 miles an hour. I get that. But you can see bat speed and strength. You know, what are we talking about a couple of years from now? Are we talking about a, you know, 25 homer, uh, you know, 270 hitter, 260? Well, I mean, who is he? Well, I, 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 I've been telling people all year, I think he's going to hit between 20 and 30 homers because he's strong. He's got bat speed. Um, as soon as he can understand uh, how to take get bats, how to lay off those breaking pitches going down and away from him, and seeing the ball closer to him, um, he's going to start walking more. He's going to uh, uh, put in more balls in play, and he's going to hit for more power, in my opinion. He's going to be between 20 and 30 homers for sure. Average-wise, I think there is no limit. Once you, uh, I think you can you start it with Jonesy, because Jonesy strapped out a ton. But, uh, when you can walk and um, when you don't walk with the ball in play, I think, um, you know, that's why the babips are so high with some of these guys because they, they walk. And then when they put the ball in play, it's a base hit, you know. So so I think Toby it's unlimited. And there's no telling what he can do average twice. But um, I do feel like there is a, a lot, a lot of room to improve offensively. Um, you know, I was very impressed with the uh, – um, his first season, the numbers he put up, uh, he was very disappointed he didn't get to 40 doubles because he talked about it um, since the break. And we thought he was in a good pace to get there, but then he slowed down the last couple of weeks. Uh, they didn't have so many anymore. But I think he's going to hit 20, 30 homers. And, you know, he's going to drive in between, you know, 70 and 90, somewhere in there. He already drove 70 plus this year. Um so I believe it's going to be somebody that's going to be uh, top out uh, moving forward. Yeah, I, I, I would agree based on what I've seen. Is one of your projects this offseason, uh, Brenton Doyle, who who should win a gold glove defensively, and we saw improvement uh, certainly in the strikeout rate in September. Uh, where, where's Brenton Doyle and what's on the menu for him um, as you go into this offseason? Well, obviously, you know, this you know, this guy's got tools. You know, he's, he's, he's big and strong. Um, you know, he's a elite defender, like you you said. You know, he should win the double up in all of his opinions. Um, on offense, you know, he's very fast. He can run. Um, he's got power. Um, but the hit tool we need to work on. You know, we need to we need to we need to correct the um, basketball skills there, so we can have more productive at bats and. And have more success with the plate, um, and put the ball in play more. And like you said, you know, it improved, um, tremendously in the last one of the season. Um, now we're got to make the next step. You know, the next step is get over that hump and not, um, worry so much about striking out because I think, um, in my opinion, with, with guys that think that way, that's when they end up striking out more. Um, it's more of a, a approach thing to me. It's like getting the pitch and hit it and not missing it. Um, so, uh, and and we've been talking to him all, all, all year. Uh, that we have to correct the end zone misses. You know, when you correct the end zone misses, then you're not going to get to the next uh, 
a pitch going down and away from you that, that you know, nobody hits. You know, there's very few uh, good hitters that hit those pitches, uh, let alone, um, you know, the, the, if you're not a really good hitter. So um, what we're going to try to do is in, incorporate a, a, a stride in there somewhere, somewhat of a, a, a load, um, which you came up with. We just um, eliminated that once the struggles were bad and just went to a, to, uh, a pre-stride uh, to eliminate some movement and have them um, go more direct with the ball. That kind of um, works for a little bit, then it didn't. Then um, he ended up strong here this month. Um, so there is, uh, uh, you know, signs that he can um, be a better hitter, and that's what we all striving for because the way he plays defense and run the bases and run, period, and throw, you know, he's got a cannon of arms. You know, we got to help him, um, um, you know, correct that uh, bad ball skills. Right. Um, I know, as you said, that's one of your projects uh, this uh, this winter, and I know you were telling me that you haven't worked it out completely that you may go visit him in Virginia or he may come down to your lab, your complex in Curacao. And I want to tell you, when we were talking about that, and I mentioned that to Jeff Houston, he volunteered to just, you know, escort Brenton to Curacao. And I, I followed up and I said, hey, you know what? What about me? I'm going too. <laughs> yeah, you all can come down. I'm actually sitting right um, outside the door. So, you know, there's some activity inside. It was a little loud, so I came outside. Um, okay. uh, yeah, we we, we exchanged uh, messages uh, in the last couple of days. You know, I, I first and foremost want them to, um, you know, just, you know, don't think about baseball, but um, as we are moving forward, these, these does have to plan how we're gonna how we're gonna get together um, at the end of the month here um, as he as he's um, I'm, I'm relaxing for a few weeks. Um, I, I you know basically send him all the options uh, and hotels and, and um, all the activities he can do. He can bring his family. Uh, we're not gonna be working out all day, um, but a couple hours a day maybe to to, uh, to correct some things. But the rest of the day is gonna be free to be a tourist and, uh, and have a little vacation here as well. Um, so hopefully he'll take that option. Um, so it's up to him. You know, we, we uh, present that to him and, um, you know, if he decides to come down here, we'll uh, uh, make sure that we, we cater to him what he needs and his family and then um, also work and get him better. And, um, you know, if, if it needs to be, you know, we can uh, find a spot in one ball somewhere and go get some at-bats just to make sure that um, – you know, he's uh, uh, comfortable with, uh, with making these adjustments and um, have him work in-game from. So, um, but if, if he doesn't want to come down here for whatever reason, then I'll, I'll visit him. He seems like, uh, you know, I talk, he's a bright kid, so um, I'm going to be shocked if he doesn't uh, pack up his young family and say, hey, we're going to go to Curacao. <laughs> and, dad, and daddy's going to take a couple hours a day and hang with Bam Bam and work on the swing, and then we'll go to the beach. Um, that that seems like that seems like a no brainer to me. And they don't even have to go to the beach; they can stay on the beach. <laughs> that yeah, you know what? I told you I'm coming too. Um, I, I want to ask you, Bam, about a kid that when he came up, first of all, he couldn't have been hotter in AAA. He had good numbers in AA. He's really hit everywhere he's been. You know, I'm talking about Hunter Goodman, and and started out like a ball of fire. Finally, got his first home run out of the way. And then I don't know if it was fatigue, playing at three different levels, the length of the season. He struggled at the end. What what did you learn about him, and and how 
impactful can he be as a big leaguer? Is he, is he an everyday bat? What do you got on him? Yeah, so Goody, I think, um, you know, has put together two great seasons in the minor leagues. You know, if you, if you look at his numbers from last year as well, it's, um, you know, two years of 36 home runs each and over 100 RBIs. Uh, I don't care where you're playing. Those are, you got to be hitting all day, every day to produce those kinds of numbers. And, and he has, you know, and he came up. Um, I believe he has 14 RBIs in his first 14 games through like 40 or 50 bats, something crazy like that. And um, so he continues to uh, produce at a high rate uh, once he got the babies as well. And then, you know, you you run into, um, okay, so today you're not playing because, you know, KB and, and, uh, and, and what they are playing or, you know, whatever combination we were using um, to get guys at bat. So we... You know, he started getting left at bat. Um, I, I, I don't want to say that he hit a wall, that he got fatigued, that he, uh, um, run into like, um, the, the, the empty the tank. But, um, but, um, you know, that's, that's hard for me to say because he was, he was working every day. He was taking BP. He was working in the cage. It, it didn't seem fatigued. You know, we talked to him. It didn't seem like he was tired. Um, it just seems like, you know, the, the, the league kind of got adjusted to him, and then he had to make an adjustment to the league. And, and that was good to see that um, he went through those struggles. So, um, so like, like you're human still, you know what I mean? Um, sure. You're not a guy that's going to come up here and then just, just be uh, on the top shelf all, day, uh, all year long. So it was good, actually, to see those struggles so we know that it's in there. And now that um, um, we identified that, now it's time for him to make uh, the necessary adjustments to uh, to the league now. Yeah, there there would be one more guy that I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about because, and you alluded to him earlier. He finished really strong. Um, Rockies fans, you know, have seen him the last couple of years. Uh, I, I think he will always be attached naturally to the to the huge deal when Nolan got traded. Nolan Arenado, I have to clarify now when you say Nolan uh, got traded to St. Louis. And that's Eloris Montero, who, uh, when he was in the Cardinal organization, uh, I believe he was the Midwest Player of the Year one year and battled some injuries. And we saw the last, you know, not a week of hot. We probably saw six weeks where this guy did a lot of damage. Um, how encouraging was that performance for you? Very encouraging because I remember um, right before he got out, really, actually, we, you know, we had conversations um Internally, and um, you know what's happening. You know why is this guy struggling so bad? Why is he adapting to the league? Uh, why can he hit like he did in the minor leagues? So, you know all the all the hard questions we were getting. And um, I remember as soon as we made a move and sent Togli out, um, that he started to give you bats. You know he totally um, relaxed and start being himself and um because you know as as these guys are human and um everybody put added pressure on themselves when they get an opportunity to play um say they get four bats today they think they can get five hits and four bats and if that has not happened yet as long as we all been living um so but as as much as you try to relax them and tell them hey don't don't put pressure yourself but they see that other guy sitting on the bench and, and they don't get a hit or two that you know tomorrow they'll they'll sit and then he'll play. So that was always a thing I believe for him this season that there was always somebody else that would play if he didn't get 
um, any hits in the game. Uh, but then, you know, the, the move was made, um, and he started playing more, and he started um, seeing him relaxing and, 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 and calming down and, and taking those pitches. He was swinging out of the zone, out of the way, um, like the majority of them. Uh, when they're struggling with uh, Toby, uh, him, and Doyle, you know, they're swinging at that, that slider going down the way from them. They can't stop. They, can't, they don't see it well. But, you know, by relaxing and and slowing the game down and having the pitch come to him, seeing the balls closer to him, allowed him to um, finally uh, show what, what, he, what he's got. You know, he's hit, what, homers in four of the last five or six games. Um, you know, we started hitting for average. We had a little high OPS through those six weeks. Um, so really what, what Montero is all about, you know. Um, but then again, you know, after the season, yeah, you, got, you know, you finish strong, but now you're going to have to go home, um, stay strong, prepare well, play with a ball, whatever it is you do, and come back and show it again next spring. Because, I mean, he's out of options. He's got to show it again. It's, it's, that's the name of the game. When you're not a bona fide star, um, you're going to have to show uh, the organization you're playing for and, and baseball in general that you're worthy of getting it back and playing regularly. Yeah. All right, Bam Bam, before I let you go, i got to ask you some, some stuff about you, your background because I find your background fascinating. First of all, uh, am I right in saying you speak five languages? Is that accurate? Yes, English, Spanish, Dutch. Um, Japanese and Papiamento is what we speak here in the islands. Um, it's a mixture of English, Spanish, Dutch, Portuguese, and French. That's, uh, our dialect here in, um, Aruba, Curacao, and Bonaire, and St. Martin. Those are Dutch colonies. And then I picked up Japanese as I played in Japan for three years. And then Spanish and English we get here in Dutch system, um, in Curacao since the fifth grade. So most people on the island speak um, five languages, and then obviously, um, you know, Dutch is the main language. We get that um, when we get into school. So we speak up your mental at home when you were born. You pick up Dutch as soon as you get into school, and then you get Spanish, uh, Spanish and the English in the fifth grade. And then I was lucky enough to go overseas and play and then stayed over there three years, and I picked that up as I was over there as well. Spending... The majority of your year um, in in the states is it English you speak the most, or is it Spanish? What do you speak the most? Do you think? Well, obviously English. You know, um, inside the uh, like when we were with the team inside the coaching staff, you know, you, you want to speak English most of the time so everybody can understand me. But Andy and I and Mooney find ways to speak Spanish with each other at some point um, during the day, maybe not every day. Um, more me and Andy because we're together almost every day, um, all day. And then, um, you know, I find ways to speak Japanese to Kuni, uh, our massage therapist uh, who's in the locker room with us and also on the flights in the train room. Um, so, and then I'm on the phone a lot of times with uh, people at home speaking Papimento and uh, up in the Netherlands speaking Dutch. So I, I pretty much speak Every language, every day, but English dominates when um, we're in the states. Right, and what? And do the kids all speak uh, four languages as well? All your kids? Um, so I have two older older daughters. They live in the states. One is in Boston, and one is in uh, San Francisco. 
they're 34 and 31. They speak three. They speak Papimento, English, and Spanish. Um, they were born and raised in the, in the U.S., so they didn't, they didn't pick up Dutch. Um, I see. At all. And then my old, my youngest three kids, my son is 13, and I got a 11 and 9 year old daughters. They speak three as well in um, Papimento, English, and Spanish. They go to an international school here, which is American curriculum, so they can fly over to the U.S. when they're done with high school. Um, that they don't speak as much Dutch either. So um, I think uh, are skipping Dutch a little bit. They can communicate and understand a little bit, but they're predominantly uh, English, Spanish, and uh, Papimento. Okay. And because and, we kid you about this, but this was, um, I, I'm sure, really special and what a, what a great honor. Um, you know, many years ago you were awarded the, uh, you know, the Order of Night. I hope I get this right. Um, by the order of uh, Orange Nassau by Queen Beatrix. How did that come about, and what does that mean to you? Um, so, and to get the to get the knighthood and and the Dutch um, Commonwealth, uh, it's very significant because it means um, you get uh, for your lifetime achievements. And I'm still fairly young at 56, and I got it 10 years ago at 46. Um, so it means that you, you have accomplished a whole lot in your, in your life, uh, up to that point, um, in terms of, you know, in my case, uh, sports. So it's not only sports, it's, it's all facets of life. It could be, uh, bankers, it could be, uh, um, uh, actress and all kinds of people can get it. But in my case, I got it because of the couple of championships I won at that point. Um, I had a big day at the Olympics in 2000 in Sydney where I had a three-round double against Cuba and we put Cuba was defeated for the first time ever in three Olympic games. Um, they had 21 game winning streak and um, we beat them four to three, four to two that day with my three-round double. Um, and I participated at the World Cup at the, uh, Intercontinental Cup, um, I was uh, also inducted in the International League uh, Hall of Fame. There was many things that accumulated over a period of time that um, you know suggested that I would be uh, uh, in the knighthood as well, and then they decided that um, somebody has to present this to the Queen, and the Queen um, allows about 50 people a year to get knighted. Um, usually, you have to go to Amsterdam. And, you know, she puts her hand on you, um, or with sword, and then, um, they get it done that way. But in my case, it was done at home plate, um, at AT&T Park, now Oracle, um, in front of, you know, full house at that time. Uh, and it was done actually by the Dutch Council that was appointed to San Francisco during those years, uh, because the, the, the thing didn't, didn't travel. Um, all the way to San Francisco to do it, and I couldn't go to Amsterdam either at the time it was done. So it was, uh, it's pretty special. I was actually the one that, um, got it done in front of the, the biggest crowd ever. That's pretty wild. Um, and, and thusly, uh, Sir Bam Bam, uh, which, uh, I'm, I'm sure not many days go by that somebody doesn't refer to you as Sir Bam Bam, right? Well, I obligated to call him Sir Bam Bam now. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hey, hey, Bam, I can't thank you enough for the time. Um, and, and I know it, it's great to be back in Curacao for you and, and to see uh, the family and the kids and, and to run your uh, facility uh, in Curacao. And um, one of these days, I'm going to get down there and knock on your front door, man. Yes, you're always welcome. Um, January is a good time to come. We have a, a big event between the 2nd and the 7th of February, Curacao Baseball Week, where we um, cater to all the little kids here. Who's done very well in the national for us. Um, it serves by giving them free clinics, uh, free seminars on the coaches. And we, um, convinced Larry Young to come down this year to give free, free, um, clinics to all our umpires. So it'll be a good week to come down here if you ever decide. Yeah, that, that's awesome. And, and, you know, I, I've said this many times on the air. I'll leave you with this. It's, it truly is remarkable. And I know it's a, it's a real point of pride for you because you've had a hand in a lot of these guys that have, you know, who have gone on and, and played professionally. But this small island from a population standpoint, you know, I, I, I kid, it's like every other household has a big leaguer in it. It's really remarkable. Yes. Um, you know, it's, um, we're very proud, uh, what these kids have done. Uh, obviously, um, with our help, getting them the, the correct uh, instructions, and um, you know, all everybody that makes it the big leagues here comes back here and give back, and that's uh, pretty pretty remarkable. They, um, you know, some of these guys delivery like Jonathan Scope and Profar and um, Simmons and Henley has a house here, and uh, you know they're all participating in my uh, in my baseball week. And they give back to these kids, and these kids all look up to them. And like you said, you know, it seems like every other household here has some kind of kid that has the potential to make. Yeah, that's great. Bam, take care of yourself. Stay well. We'll we'll talk soon. And uh, I always appreciate the time during the season and certainly appreciate you spending uh, spending some time today. You're welcome. Be good. Yeah, the thing about Curacao, we talk about it on television. Obviously, we were just talking about it with Bam Bam. Is how many players have come out of this this tiny island, and they're a close knit group. And um, always enjoy. There, there's something. There's something about island guys. There's something about uh, Curacao in particular. All these guys are are bright and um, you know energetic. Big smiles to greet you. Uh, Jerks and Profar, who was with the Rockies most of this year, and then went back to San Diego at the end. I, you know, he, his nickname could have been Smiley. I mean, he get hit and be jogging down to first, he have a smile on his face. Uh, just a great guy, and, and Bam Bam obviously falls in that category. Sharp guy who um, I, I believe at some point, um, I hope, fingers crossed, will have an opportunity to manage because he deserves to. Good leader, good leader, good people person. Um, he's, he's a guy that uh, folks gravitate to. Players really respect. And that's uh, the most important thing in a leadership capacity, whether you're a coach in college football or a manager in Major League Baseball. That'll do it for uh, this week's edition. We'll get more into the abs in coming weeks uh, as we tape this on this Sunday. A rough one last night uh, in Vegas against the defending cup champion Golden Knights they lose 7 to nothing i will remind everyone that uh in 1996 the first year that the avalanche were in town moving from quebec they lost 7 to nothing to the detroit red wings and then ultimately later that year took the red wings out in the playoffs on their way to stanley cup number 1 
but uh, that was that was a mess on a Saturday night in Vegas. That'll do it. You all stay safe, stay well, enjoy the week. I'm headed to fantasy camp. There'll be stories uh, coming out of that, I'm sure, next week for all of you. Take care. We'll do it again in seven days. Thank you.